Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are David Hoffman, Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, and Kathy Wong, Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. We'll be discussing their essay, The Social Cost of Contract, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. I'll add a link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Dave, Kathy, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Andrew. Your essay follows from the stress of this current pandemic that we are facing and the stresses that it has put on contract performance in many instances, whether that is performance for large events or wedding receptions, et cetera. Could you maybe set the stage a little bit for us? What's going on in the contract world with regard to this pandemic and what ideas or questions motivated you to write this paper? I'll take that one to start. The paper probably had its genesis during the great pause of the spring when we were all in our respective houses and apartments trying to figure out what was going to come next, opposed to now when we know exactly what's going to happen next. (laughs) And we were observing thousands, millions, tens of millions of contracts being simultaneously sort of breached, whether they were tenants who weren't paying rents and then tenant courts had not permitted uh, evictions, which didn't mean that those leases were not in breach, or large multinational M&A deals that were going sideways or even south. And Our thought when we started talking about that was to try to come up with some ways in which public health might interact with court's treatment of that epidemic of non-performance. I think the thing that we were really trying to grapple with was to avoid merely saying what others were saying at the time, which was that you should read your contract to know what's going to happen. And that advice is usually good advice. I mean, that's the advice I give to my students when I want to avoid giving them legal advice is you read your own contract. Um, but the advice sort of was like, look for your force majeure clause. If you, you know, if you're in a large multinational contract, look to your lease about the consequences of termination, look to your wedding venue contract about what it says when there's cancellation, who owes what to whom. And that advice, which is sort of the normal science of contract law has been the right advice for at least two or three generations of American contract practitioners and was the advice that was being given by law firms especially in the spring, which essentially was, you'll get what you bargain for. And we think that's both right and wrong. And as we sort of started looking at the materials, and we'll talk more about this, of course, during the podcast, we wanted to push back against that advice. So that was the big picture was to try to think about how health interacts with contract performance, interacts with contract language. And that was where we started. Stepping back from the current pandemic and the great pause of the spring, Traditionally, what or historically, what role have public policy and the public interest played in contracting? How have they intervened from time to time in private agreements between contracting parties? I think we often think of contract law as private law, right? And we don't think, I mean, I didn't at least think that hard when I was a student, especially, or as a practitioner about how the public plays a role. But our view is that the public always plays a role in private contracting, in that the public always gets a say either before the contract is written, during the contract's writing, or after. So before 
That would be like legislatures or case law designating what is an illegal thing that you can't contract around. During the kind of contract drafting stage, we're talking about regulators and how they interact with what's in the contract, both substantively and in form. So a good example of this would be that M&A contracts, a lot of them need to be reviewed by antitrust authorities. And, you know, the DOJ or the FTC gets a say in what goes into the contract and what goes into the deal substantively as well. And some contracts are written with regulators in mind, both consumer contracts and business to business contracts. And then there's this final area, which is what happens when the parties have a dispute and they actually take it to court. We think of this as another way that the public can intervene through the mechanism of the court. So I like to think of it this way, that there's private contracts involve the parties to the contract, and it also always involves the public. The public allows these contracts in a way, allows these private contracts to flourish, given the amount of externality that the public is bearing. So thinking about the wedding example, for instance, my friends were having a wedding that they ended up postponing. And that wedding was at a public aviary that is surrounded by private houses. So I'm not really sure, but they probably are going to take up some parking spaces. They're going to increase traffic to that area. They might have had to get a permit if they were going to play loud music around these private houses. When they were deciding to have this wedding and entering into a contract with the venue, these were things that the public decided was acceptable to bear for them to have their wedding. But now that there's a pandemic, the public's share of the burden increases drastically. So the public, if there was a dispute in court, would have another chance to say, wait a second, that's too much externality and we don't want to bear that. So you discuss a few different ways that public policy and public interest intervene in private contracting. And in the essay, as you note, you focus on enforcement interventions, i.e. what courts will do when they are asked to enforce contracts. Historically, what have courts done in this regard or what have they not done to inject policy or public interest into contract enforcement or to take those considerations into account? So that's a great question. I mean, Usually we think of American courts, right, as really enforcing contracts more or less as they are written with a little bit of fuzziness around the edges about how they interpret them, right? So usually if you and I have a contract and it says you're going to pay me a million dollars and I'm going to provide you with a teacup, usually courts are kind of cool with that. Maybe not this particular example. I think that in the pandemic situation, we basically reached back and read pandemic cases. And there we saw situations where courts really took a half loaf solution, right? So they really said, this pandemic is kind of weird and enforcing the contract exactly as written is going to come up with kind of weird results and incentives that we don't like. Our favorite case in this vein is a case that Dave has talked about quite a lot. It's a case called Hanford, and it's about a baby fair that was supposed to happen in Connecticut. So these folks, essentially, they were going to have a baby fair. I always like to tell people like a baby fair is like a dog show, basically, like you bring babies and we decide if they are cute, I guess. We, we determine which one is the cutest. No, I mean, you just you evaluate the babies on many metrics, not just cutest. It's also best dimple, best eyes, best, best, best disposition hair. and fattest. I thought there was also twins, yeah, twin siblings. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways to judge babies. (laughs) I would say that... We, we'd hope that maybe something like that wouldn't go on today, but if we look at the fair on, on different cable networks, that is very much a uh, practice that we still probably do to a good degree. And these are babies. They don't know, I hope. It's meant to be cute, I think. <laughs> 
In the baby fair case, for instance, the baby promoter, he basically sued because the baby fair was canceled because of the polio pandemic. So the court basically said he doesn't get any damages, even though the contract would have him get damages because it would have been disastrous to have a baby fair. So it's the right thing to do, essentially. So we see some of that happening already. But as we mentioned in the paper, it's really anti-canon, right? These are weird little cases. Weird, but fun, I would say. In the paper, as you mentioned, you borrow this concept of the anti-canon, and it's a really interesting frame in the paper. What is that anti-canon? What do you mean by that? And how should it deepen or perhaps confuse our understanding of policy or public interest in contract? So, you know, as you point out, it is a borrowed term. Jamal Green has a paper about the anti-canon in constitutional law. In constitutional law, we have the canon, you know, Brown, sort of the typical case, um, Marbury, cases in which your theory has to make sense of those cases in order for the theory to be right. You can't have a theory of constitutional interpretation that disagrees with Brown. You can't have a theory of constitutional interpretation that disagrees with Marbury. And then Jamal Green says you have an anti-canon, a set of cases that are wrong. Everyone acknowledges are wrong, but sort of ought to be taught and understood in part because their wrongness sheds light on what makes the canon what it is. That's a well-worn set of tropes from common law. We decide to borrow. And the way we're doing so is not exactly analogous. So we're not saying that the anti-canon of cases that we're discussing are wrong. What we're saying is they're weird. What is the canon in contract law? The canon in contract law is the canon that says that our goal is to give the parties what they bargained for. And we know what they bargained for by looking at their sort of publicly expressed contemporaneous meanings. That's what the interpretation project is. And to defenses to giving them what they bargained for are going to be rare, granted, and we're going to be really attentive to dynamic downstream effects, incentives. So what we're really thinking about in contract law is what will the parties do in response to our ruling? You know, how are they going to bargain around it? What are going to be the information flows around that bargaining? And we're going to try to the extent that we can to have a doctrine that fits their settled expectations and advances the goal of transactional planning. I would describe that like in main big picture strokes as the project of American contract law, at least in World War II, and even with the progressive tradition sort of waxing and waning throughout. So what's the anti-canon? The anti-canon is the set of cases that says something really funky has happened and we're going to have a different result than we normally would. We're not going to get parties what they want. Our project no longer is to be attentive to the party's interests entirely. Most obviously before the pandemic, this particular pandemic context, public policy as a defense has this feeling. And as a result, it often gets sort of tagged as unprincipled. They say public policy is a horse unlike no other. You know, once you get on the horse, you have no idea where it's going to take you. And this is a very often these sort of horse metaphors for whatever reason or what people use to describe public policy. And in part, we're trying to recharacterize that. Yes, these cases are not predictable. Yes, they don't just advance the wills of the parties. Yes, they seem to be attentive to external risk, to third-party risk, especially third-party risks that develop later. And yes, sort of looking ex-ante, you would not necessarily have predicted the result. But that doesn't mean they're wrong, and it doesn't mean that they're so unprincipled that you can't make sense of them together. So the anti-canon is just basically this idea that you've got this species of cases that's not impracticability. Costs have not gone up. It's not impossibility. It's not impossible to perform. It's not mistake. It's not frustration of purpose. It's not duress. It's not even unconscionability. And it's not traditional public policy. 
Because at the time, for example, the baby fair contract is made, it's not against public policy to have baby fair. In fact, matter of fact, it might be good um, to get to see the, the best-looking baby of Hartford, Connecticut of 1916. We could all imagine the entertainment value to be able to go to a fair before television. And so what's going on? Something changed after the contract formed, and the court has to decide whether or not it is going to, in the absence of public guidance, public regulatory guidance, public legislative guidance, is it going to take it in its own hands to allow the parties to take into account public health risks? And there are other cases like it, not that many, but there are some in which the courts do basically the same thing. Some of the cases you could think of come from like the non-disclosure context where courts refuse to enforce non-disclosure agreements when those non-disclosure agreements are hiding sort of really important public health risks to third parties like sexual harassment, or you could think of it in the context of a performance contract in which the parties agreed, this is an old case from Alaska, the parties agreed they were going to deliver goods across a frozen lake. It turns out the lake was less frozen than the parties had hoped for or could reasonably have expected to hope for. And someone started, basically, there was a death in the performance. The performance is supposed to take time. And the courts excused the second performance because they said, look, that's just a lot of unexpected third-party risk. So the anti-canon is basically a way to make sense of this category of cases which go against the mine run case in contract law in that it really does take seriously the idea that contracts exist within a social matrix and ought to pay attention to pressing changes in social risks that occur resulting from performance. Unlike tort law, contract law doesn't have a theory of third-party harm, nor do these cases, uh, but they do suggest that contract law sometimes attends to third-party harm, and that's why we want to think of them as anti-canon. Not quite wrong, but not quite right. Uh, not quite predictable, but not quite random. And that's our sort of story on that term. Looking to the present day, so stepping back from 1916, looking to the present day, and maybe a little bit ahead of us, contracts are being breached en masse due to the COVID-19 pandemic, or they are at risk of being breached how would the ideas we've discussed today and that you discuss in your essay be applied to litigation over those breaches, or how should they be applied? Yeah, why don't I start with the descriptive, and then maybe, Kathy, you can sort of do the should part. So, you know, descriptively, I mean, we have no idea, right? So there's a lot of cases already being filed about breach during COVID. One observation that we make in the paper is that many of these cases are going to be adjudicated in mass tribunals. In part because there are so many parties to, for example, like hotel booking contracts, airline contracts, travel contracts of various sorts, college attendance contracts, for love of everything. So we think that there's going to be many, 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 many parties. They're going to go to mass tribunals. And what they're going to get in those mass tribunals, whether those tribunals are class arbitrations, MDL proceedings, which are already sort of starting to gin up in the insurance context, or regular old class actions, is going to be rough justice and rough justice of a particular sort. So one thing we observe in the paper is that, you know, in the last 20 years, we see a lot of mass adjudication of tort, not a lot of mass adjudication of contract. There hasn't been sort of the kind of events that gave rise to it, at least since the asbestos crisis. And... Mass adjudication doesn't really allow you to pay a ton of attention to the details of the individual contract. Rather, you get kind of like equitable formulas to to give relief. So one thing we say is that it's unlikely, contrary to sort of the law firm guidance, that looking at your contract is going to totally tell you the answer. Once you're in a mass tribunal, something like reputation plus insurance money and the coefficients in front of those two things really matter, plus 
something like the global understanding of whether or not individual contracts are winners or losers, plus something like the settlement judge's pressure on the parties is going to produce a pot of money. Like that equation produces a pot of money with some number in front of it. And then the division is going to be equitable, maybe pro rata, or maybe sort of first come to the post, or maybe something to do with the merits. So descriptively, the relationship between contract outcomes that are sort of these mass COVID events and contract inputs is going to be more remote than I think academics would expect and maybe lawyers would hope. That's the first thing. And the, and the second thing we think is that the anti-canon is going to matter when lawyers look for cases in which their sort of disease played a role in performance or breach. There really aren't that many. And we tried to capture them all on the paper, and they're all over the map, and they don't point in a particular way. And the result of looking at those cases, I think, is going to be a lot of uncertainty in the litigation that we have, and there's going to be room for some courts to really ignore contract terms if they want to. And I'll, now I'll leave it to Kathy to sort of say what we think they ought to do. I agree with everything that David said. Practically speaking, if you were my friend, which you are, Andrew, um, if you were my friend and came and asked me what you should do with a contract, I would say that you should try to renegotiate it, right? Especially with the cost of litigation. So with the cost of litigation already being what it is, and with the kind of mass adjudication that we expect that Dave described, I think that the best thing to do would be to try to come up with your own, essentially, half-wolf solution without going through the trouble of filing suit. So one thing that I think is relevant here is the first case I know of, the first big case where parties litigated this or tried to litigate this was a case that was filed in district court, federal district court in Utah, where I believe it was the band The Killers were scheduled to play at this big Qualtrics corporate conference. And the corporate conference was canceled and the killers like promoter or agent or somebody was saying, this is terrible. You know, we want we want to get paid anyway. And essentially that case, I mean, it was the big first big splashy case, but it was also, it was settled, I believe. So many of these cases will be settled or they'll be settled in a kind of mass adjudication format. So we would just really suggest that people try to renegotiate. In the case of my friend's wedding, they just, you know, they were able to reschedule until next year. And I don't believe they've any penalties for that. It's a practical non-legal solution is what I would say. All right. So that's some good legal advice, or that is some good ad- non-legal advice, but it is not legal advice. <laughs> Dave, Kathy, what key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation and from your essay? And are there any open questions that you see? I think for me, so a large part of what I think about is cases that don't make it to opinion, right? And I think most cases don't make it to opinion. Most cases are settled or at most, you know, a litigator presents a draft complaint and then that scares people off or you file and then you settle. And so I think a lot of what I think about is these cases that don't make it to opinion. There is a canon in book law. And what we're thinking about here is those weird cases that do make it to opinion and what people should do if they have a weird case, like they want to postpone for a pandemic. The fact that they don't usually make it to opinion means that there's relatively few of those cases, but there are also extra legal, extra contractual things that they can do, like renegotiate. So I agree with Kathy and about the, the big picture takeaway. I, I mean, I think the other a surprise I had when we wrote this article, which maybe is something like a takeaway, is that there really aren't that many relevant cases about disease and contract. And that's surprising because disease that, as we see, you know, disease can be enormously disruptive to commercial life. And the, like the 1918 Spanish flu and the 1916 polio epidemic are things that 
were enormously disruptive to the life of the country, but produced almost no actual opinions. On one hand, it's sort of it's sociologically interesting. You know why that might be? Is it because, as Kathy suggested, people mostly settle, and they particularly likely to settle when the social pressures to do so are immense, given disruption, or it really just kind of signals something about how weird a record case law is of our actual lives. How it's like a fossil record where you don't really know what you're capturing exactly. You're capturing, you know, the dinosaurs at their oddest moments, not the ordinary life. And it's a reminder for me how careful we have to be about generalizing anything from the opinions that we end up seeing. I mean, you know, maybe there's 50 pandemic or disease cases in the opinion record. You know, maybe, maybe there are, maybe there's even fewer that really are about the thing. That's just really low. I mean, there are many more statute of fraud cases than there are cases about pandemic or epidemic disease. And I don't know exactly whether the takeaway from that is that the statute of frauds is more important or the judges end up sort of talking about the thing that's in front of them where it's, it's sort of framed in a legal way. The result is that there is going to be a huge mass of COVID cases that we started over the next couple of years, whether how many of them end up in opinions. I think we could fairly predict not that many. And whether those opinions are going to be well guided by existing precedent you know, I just don't know that they would be. And that is an interesting thing to think about as someone like I do. I think about contract law a lot. It's really interesting to think about what that means for what it is that we're actually studying. Our guests today have been David Hoffman, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, and Kathy Wonk, professor of law at the University of Virginia. We've discussed their essay, The Social Cost of Contract, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. I'll link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Dave, Kathy, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to talk to you again, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.